You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 34. The People of Green Hollow. From the Journal of James Penrose, Mississippi, July 20th, 1883. The village was thriving. Everywhere we looked, people came to their doorways to peek at the steamcraft. They had clearly spent the last few years being fruitful and multiplying because every woman was pregnant. I spotted and was shocked by a few girls that may not have been twelve yet with protruding bellies. At first I speculated that this was simply due to starvation, which can have that effect, but their faces were not drawn. In fact, they looked well fed. Recalling Annie's fears, I saw black women here and there also pregnant though wearing poorer clothes than the white people, and each of them was hard at work. So slavery, or at least some kind of racial hierarchy, was still in force here. Boys walked around with rifles slung over their shoulders, some as young as seven or eight. They squinted up at us and waved the horsemen on. Annie breathed a sigh of relief as Major Butler stepped out of the grand central mansion building, accompanied by two people dressed authoritatively. Hello again, my friends. Butler smiled, face slightly pained, his vocal tone injected with forced joviality. Annie Oakley, Abigail Gray, and James Penrose, let me introduce you to Dale McLellan, the mayor of Green Hollow, and his lady wife, Rose. Annie exited Steamheart, pulled Abigail out, and waved me along, too, but held up her hand to Pines, Raven, and Miguel. From the cockpit, Harry looked at Abigail nervously as the hatch was closed on them. The McClellans saw this. Why, it's charming to meet you fine people, just charming, said Dale, shaking me by the hand and then kissing Abigail and Annie on their fingers. We was just about to have some late lunch served. Oh, we would love it if you would join us. We would be honored, said Annie. Do you mind if our friends stay inside that thing? They have to fix it up for us, and there's a lot of work to do. Been a heck of a trip so far. Thank y'all for the assistance, of course. She said all this so fast that the subject was changed before the mayor could object to the first request. I glanced around the street before we went inside. Everyone was still looking at us, and at Steamheart. Dale was broad and avuncular, with a beetroot red face, a shiny green pinstriped three-piece suit, and an air of finery about him. Rose was slender and patrician, with owl-like glasses and an airy delivery. She wore a wide, multi-layered mauve silk dress, adorned with lace and squared shoulders. Come on in, ladies, said Rose. My, but aren't you a tall one? Thank you, ma'am, replied Abigail uncomfortably. We were led into an opulent dining room and seated at an empty table. Every member of the serving staff was black. All of the women had noticeable bellies. You certainly have been busy here, I said. Every woman I've seen is in bloom. Except you, Mrs. McClellan. Oh, but I've had my allotted share of children, she smiled. Buford here, our eldest, is a father of several himself. I'm a grandmother, would you believe it? I certainly would not, I replied, turning on the charm. Buford sat beside Butler and never smiled. He wore a thick black beard with a shaved head and a grey suit that seemed ever so slightly too tight for his muscular frame. Wine was poured for us all. 
I caught Annie's warning eye and spotted Abigail doing the same. I made a pantomime of sipping without actually allowing any to pass my lips. I could not detect anything unusual in the aroma, but it was better to be safe than sorry here. When you say allotted share, Abigail inquired, does that mean it's mandatory to bear children in Green Hollow? Shall I tell them the plan? Rose asked Dale, and he tilted his head regarding her fondly. You just tell away, my darling. First off, I'm the school teacher here. I specialize in mathematics. Our new way of life began about eleven years ago when the goblins turned up and folks started dying in droves. We began a time of hard living and vigilance, and even to this day we have to hunt them down at our borders. The woods aren't safe, and only inside our walls can we call this land our own. That's an intimidating place to be. Over the years, I met women who plain straight up decided not to bring any children into the world anymore. Can you conceive of that? Folks go to extremes when they're scared. Annie commented understandingly. Well, where I'm from, that's called giving up on life. But I did the math on our town and worked out how long it would be with the current dropping birth rates and rising death rates before we just plain winked out of existence. She expressed this earnestly, with eyes wide, to emphasize the danger. So I told my husband, you're the mayor. People listen to what you have to say. Let's tell them not to give up. Let's carry on and push back. The more mouths we have to feed also means we got twice as many hands to grow that food. Which is why you have so many youngsters, Abigail exclaimed, as though it weren't blindingly obvious. She was probably trying to avoid long, awkward silences. Absolutely right, Miss Gray. Each lady in town that elected to stay with us got given a bill. You shall provide us with six babies. Boys can be soldiers, girls can be mothers, and niggers can work the fields. And what if women don't want to be mothers? What if they want to be soldiers, or work the fields? Well then, that's an indicator they aren't Green Hollow's kind of people said Rose, her face hardening a little. We want families, and families share. But of course they're free to leave any time they like. Do y'all mind if I use the ladies' room? I've had too much wine already. Abigail's glass was untouched. Annie glanced over, but did not suggest accompanying her as I thought she might. The rift between them may have widened to the point where Oakley had effectively abandoned her post. Or was the captain intent on staying in this room? Well, sure. Just step outside and it's the fifth door on your right. Cassie will show you the way, said Dale. One of the black serving girls obediently followed Abigail out. Abigail. I really did need to pee, but that wasn't my reasoning for stepping outside. As we'd first entered the house in that grand, wide atrium beside the main staircase, I'd caught a soft cry. It had come from upstairs, and I thought it was only the front door hinge squeaking, and Rose was prattling on at the same time. But all this talk of baby requirement had me curious, and not in a good way. I didn't want to find what I suspected I might. Cassie wouldn't talk to me, and kept her head bowed. Once we found the indoor toilet, I told her she could go back to the dining room. She responded that she was not permitted yet, 
so I told her I had a stomach upset. It might be a while. It was Spartan in there. Just a wooden chair with a chamber pot in the seat, a pile of rags, a water pump, and a window. But as I'd hoped, the window could be opened and indeed climbed out of. First of all, though, I emptied my bladder. Didn't want to get, as James would say, caught short in a place of danger. I found myself behind the house, flattened against the wall, then glanced up to see an open window above. Remembering each time I had gotten onto the roof at Weirwood, I clambered up to the first floor. I was standing now in a tidy bedroom. I crept to the door and peeked out. Nobody was in sight, so I stole into the corridor, taking note of my surroundings on the top of the main staircase. I could make out Annie and Rose talking loudly below. I heard several whimpers now and opened the door they were filtering through. The sight of what was inside chilled my blood. It was six beds, arranged three on each side of the room, and through another doorway was a matching chamber with a further half dozen. It was cool and musty in here. The shutters were closed. But I could make out in the dim light six sets of eyes looking at me. Six women were tied to the beds. They were all in different states of pregnancy. Two were white, two Mexican, one was Indian, and the last was black. I immediately held up a finger to them all. The lady closest to me was Mexican and had a gag tied around her mouth. I mimed that I would take it off her, and she nodded, her eyes wide. (laughs) What's your name? Consuela. You're all being held here against your will. I whispered, horrified. She nodded as did several of the others who had heard me. I'm going to help you escape, I said. Without thinking about the how, all I could focus on was this unbearable tyranny. Can you all walk? I asked, realizing that many of them could have been fastened to these beds for months. Unless they were allowed exercise each day, they might not have the strength to even stand. But that wasn't the case. The black girl's legs were above the sheets and had become emaciated and stick-thin. Consuela shook her head at me and gestured to pull the thin cot sheet off. Her ankles had been purposefully broken. I struggled to breathe through my fury. Then I heard footsteps. The door opened and a white man with a short Mohican haircut walked in. He saw me standing beside Consuela and open his mouth to demand to know why I was up here. The words never left. I'd stepped forward and punched him in the windpipe. (coughs) He gasped and clutched at his throat, lashing out with his other hand and then launching himself into me. I was at an extreme disadvantage, trying to be quiet in an unfamiliar and dark room. His dive pushed us both down onto Consuela's legs. Her face screwed up in agonizing pain and her belly just under my arm. I was stuck. Unable to move without hurting her further, 
and the man had his hands around my neck. When he squeezed, I felt a rush of panic. Everything closed in. I couldn't breathe. All I could see were his gnashing teeth and his eyes wide with pure hatred. He wrenched my hair back and I bit his wrist, tasting blood. I clamped down hard and fell a chunk come away in my teeth as he gasped in pain and punched me full in the face. The world went white. His blood trickled against my cheek as he scraped his fingers over my eye patch, pulling it aside. For one brief moment, he was distracted by my starlit eye, which caught him off guard. This was my window. I heaved my right leg up and thrust it in between the two of us, feeling Consuela writhe in pain beneath me at the shift in weight. But in that second, she lurched forward and bit into his upper arm, using the only weapons at her disposal. She took a chunk of him for herself. He was making shrieking noises now. His neck was inside the back of my knee, and I gripped it tight to prevent a full-on scream. His other hand was still gripping my throat, and I could feel myself blacking out, but with the additional distance between us, I had enough room to move my right arm. I slammed my elbow down against the top of his skull twice, feeling his body spasm in agony, then crashed my fist into his nosebone. His head jerked back, and he slumped down on top of me. Dead. The women and I breathed together. Several of them were crying. I heaved the body off me and slid from the bed, dragging it away to shove under a table. I had killed after months of resolving not to. Many of the Southern Cross Raiders whom I helped defend Steamheart from might well have died as a result of my actions. But this was a direct, hot-blooded murder. The first with my bare hands. It felt deeply, deeply wrong. But surveying the women in this room, I could not imagine doing anything else to their monstrous captors. I, I'm so sorry, I stammered. Go! Consuela urged. I'm coming back for you all, I promised. James. Major Butler tells me you're fleeing the government, said Rose with interest. Oh, yes. Annie nodded without missing a beat. We don't hold with all this reunification. We're heading west to live free. Well, that's music to our ears. You know, the biggest mistake this nation ever made was in how we fought the Revolutionary War. Go on. We put pay to the British and made our strong, declarative statement to the world. We shall not be governed. And then what do we do? Set up a government that interferes with our every way of life, taxing us through the nose, telling us we can't do this or that, taking our property. The woman hammered a bony white finger on the table. This country was where we all went to be free, and we made ourselves prisoners. She sat back proudly, her chin raising. Well, not anymore. They're dying out, and we're flourishing down here. Well, you all seem to have everything worked out sweet as a nut, said Butler. So here's what I'm thinking. We go back to our carriage out there, find some way to repay you for the horses, and then tomorrow morning we ride out of here leaving you good, kind, salt-of-the-earth people to your own devices. Six horses are pretty valuable said Buford out of nowhere. 
Or what you got for trade? Got us a bunch of gold, some fancy gadgets you might like, uh, the few guns we can spare that'll still leave us protected. No, said Buford, his voice rough and deep, his demeanor uncompromising. Gold ain't worth shit out here if you're supporting yourself like a real man. These guns will take. We're gonna need something we can use. Well, uh, what's on your minds? Butler was hiding his nerves exceptionally well. Had this rose cut back in? We couldn't help but notice as you came in that you brought a pretty little negress along with you. She's not for sale, Annie said, her voice growing icy. Oh, come now. Can she drag that great carriage of yours all the way west? We're offering you the road forward, and all you have to do is whatever chores you won't have her for. And I'm darn sure you can buy yourself a fresh one wherever they take gold down the road. The serving maids had brought in our lunch. The starter was a sweet potato soup. Replicating our caution with the wine, none of us picked up our spoons. I have an alternative, I suggested, feeling things darken and tighten up at the table. I am a doctor, and a rather good one at that. Since this town is predicated upon a high birth rate, it stands to reason that you will need assistance and education in that regard. In return for the horses, I will firstly tend to anybody who is in need of a doctor, and I shall then gladly teach a course in the safest and most effective ways to not only deliver children, but to take care of the mothers and tend to a number of wounds and maladies your own medical experts might be deficient in. I am offering you the gift of knowledge." in return for six relatively easily replaceable horses. We know all we need to about doctrine, said Buford. We want six nigger pups in exchange for those six horses. That means your girl is ours. And if we say no? You are, of course, free to leave. Same as everyone else, said Rose, sweetly acidic. I think we will do that. We can drive our craft out of here on its own. It still needs repairs, but... We'll find our own horses. Well, eat your soup first. Save some strength for the road. I'm suddenly not hungry. Oh, go on, eat up, said Dale. Our cook made it special. We'll just uh, step on out of you folks' hair, said Butler, raising to his feet. Eat your fucking soup, Buford bellowed. At this same instant, without warning, he pulled a bowie knife from the sheath at his hip and slammed the point of it into the table with such force that each bowl deposited part of its contents sideways onto our placemats. I gingerly picked up my spoon, looking at Annie as I did so. I'm still hungry, I said, and dipped into the thick orange liquid. Across the table, standing behind Dale, One of the serving girls looked me dead in the eye and gave the tiniest shake of her head. Rose saw this and glanced at Dale. He frowned. Oh, Lulabelle. Why in the cotton-picking heck have you got to go interfering again? He drew a volcanic pistol and shot Lulabelle through the chin. In the split second this occurred, Buford had pulled the knife and brought the blade of it upwards towards Butler's throat. And Annie had drawn both pistols, shooting Dale through the eye and holding the other on Buford, who howled in rage and dismay as Dale slumped down. Don't move, Annie said. Her voice was steel. Now cut his throat like a hog. Got a derringer in his back, too. He's telling the truth. Only way you can save him is put the guns down. 
You the negotiator in this place? Annie asked him as Abigail burst in through the dining room doors, spattered with blood and panting. I am. Well, I have a gun on your mother. And I have two very simple demands that will prevent a bullet from leaving it and entering her cranium. And those are? Clearly things have gone south here. You're goddamn right they did. You killed my fucking father. And you're a smarter boy than him. You can get this fixed without losing any more of your family. That's the most important thing here, right? Family? Buford glared at her with absolute hatred and hissed through clenched, sharp teeth. Yes. Good. I need two horses and passage out of here with three people. I'm not letting this cocksucker go. Buford snarled. Butler breathed slowly. Wasn't going to ask for him. I'm taking the doc here, the redhead there, and your mother. The hell you are. The hell I am indeed. This is actually your best chance to save her. See, I'm going to take her with me. You want her treated well. I want the rest of my friends treated well. The best chance for all of us to get what we want is to leave our hostages unharmed and trade off later. That is, if your mom is worth a bunch of strangers who never meant you any harm. She looked across at Abigail. Front door, please. Smoothly and swiftly, Annie brought us from the dining room and through to the outside, Abigail watching for her as she walked backwards into the sun, her pistols never leaving Rose or Buford. Two horses were called, the gates were opened, and with some difficulty, Annie mounted one with Rose in front of her. Abigail and I took the other. Through the windows of Steamheart, Harry, Raven and Jeremy watched what was going on terror in their eyes. I will repeat for everyone to hear, said Annie as many rifles were pointed at us, young eyes squinting down the sights. We will be back with Rose in a few days' time for a trade-off. All we want is to leave you in peace. That's not too much to ask. You can still save her. But our friends are not to be harmed, or she will get the same. Annie turned to look at Frank for what she feared might be the last time. I have always had trouble reading faces, but the expression he wore was crystal clear, even to me. He trusted, supported, and loved her, and she felt the same for him. The two horses rode forth, leaving Steamheart behind. Listening to episode 34 of Steamheart, The People of Green Hollow, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. James Penrose, performed by Alex Shaw. Annie Oakley, performed by Loretta Saylor. Rose McClellan, performed by Theo Lee. Buford McClellan, performed by Jacob Newburn. Dale McClellan, performed by Matthew A. Siebert. Consuela, performed by Maya Santandrea. And Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Make your decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Wasteland, composed and performed by Ross Bugden. Umbrella, Simplex, Anxiety and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. 
many soundscapes including Protean Fields and Dark City by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Sabard, Michael Hasco, John Clayson, Taylor Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Consuela was not born in Green Hollow. She was the last survivor of a wagon train that was heading east from Arkansas to Florida. Four other women had been recovered from that expedition. Their babies were already in the houses of other families in that township and already receiving their training 